This is Metrosource Minis, the official podcast of Metrosource Magazine and home of short-form interviews with your favorite personalities from the LGBTQ world and beyond. Quick, fun, and informative, it's Metrosource on the go. Out and proud since 1990. Well, hello, hello, hello. This is Alexander Rodriguez, lead writer for Metrosource Magazine and avid podcaster. During COVID, there has been one industry that has been getting us through this. I'm not talking about Postmates, but thank you, Postmates. I'm talking about entertainment. New York Post, uh, New York Post reported that the average American is watching eight hours a day of content. And we know that we've experienced a boom in LGBTQ representation and also a boom in LGBTQ entertainment people coming out of the closet. Um, so we have all of this energy going on. And today our guest is Director of Entertainment Media for GLAAD, Jeremy Blackwell. He joined GLAAD in 2017 as Director of Entertainment Media, where he serves as liaison between GLAAD and the film, television, music, and even gaming sectors. He works to ensure that the industry is equipped to leverage GLAD's research and resources to bring about fair, inclusive, accurate, and diverse representation of LGBTQ people and issues. Prior to GLAD, uh, he worked as a journalist with a focus in entertainment news. He began his career in New York City at NBC's Weekend Today show and has worked for CNN, Telepictures, and NBC Universal. He helped launch the TMZ brand and also the CAA uh, created digital agency, Husay. He spent five years as managing editor of AccessHollywood.com and later spearheaded the editorial relationship between Yahoo and CBS's The Insider, appearing frequently on air as a contributor. In recent years, he has worked as a digital marketing consultant while also freelance writing for publications including Variety, The Wrap, and ET Online. He's a proud 10-time AIDS Lifecycle participant, an electronic music producer, and a DJ. Hey, Mr. DJ, put a record on. We have Jeremy Blacklow here. Hey. Hello. Thank you for having me today. Of, of course. So I want to know what it's like to sit back and listen to your resume kind of recited to you. You have done so much in your you career. Um, like, who is this guy? I want to meet him. Like, it's you. It's you. <laughs> but so many aspects of entertainment from, you know, fun celebrity gossip, but, to you know, to presidential elections, the Iraq war. What was that turning point in your career where it kind of clicked for you and you're like, OK, my path is clear. I'm here to make a name for myself. What was that turning point for you? Um, oh, that's a great question. I mean, you know, I, I really come from the same background that you come from, Alexander. I was a journalist, you know, and, and my whole dream, my whole life was just to get into journalism and to do meaningful work. And then very early on, I found myself gravitating towards entertainment because like you, I love entertainment. I love Hollywood. I love storytelling. Um, yeah. and, and really that's, you know, whether you're a hard news journalist or you're in the middle of Hollywood, like like my career's gone direction of, of being, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's storytelling, right? At, at the end of the day, the thing it all ha has in common is the humanity and, and um, being really committed to that art of storytelling, whether the, you're the one telling the story or helping someone tell the story or um, working, you know, in, in this weird ecosphere that we call the entertainment industry. Um, and so, you know, for me, I, I really just, you know, did the journalism thing for a long time. And then I hit that point in my forties where I needed something different. And when the opportunity to, to go work for GLAAD full time came along, it all clicked. And I was like, oh, this is what I want to be doing with my life right now. Um, and I haven't really looked back since. 
Now, what was it about journalism? Like when you were a kid, was there like a new segment you saw or was it, you know, uh, like Entertainment Tonight as a kid? What was it about journalism that really kind of sparked your interest in that? That's a really great question, actually. Um, and we didn't really get into this in the amazing profile that I'm so grateful that you wrote. You wrote for me in, in Metrosource, which um, my family and friends are so proud of. Um, oh, it was so fun to write. <laughs> it was, I was very honored. Thank you. Um, it, my mom was a journalist. Uh, actually, oh, we didn't get wow. My, my mom was an on-air anchor and reporter at the NBC affiliate in Seattle, Washington. And she was one of the first journalists ever to appear on air pregnant in the mid seventies with me. And um, I sort of grew up in a newsroom. Like I literally would go after school some days, you know, my parents were divorced. My, you know, a lot of the time I was with my mom and I basically grew up in the King five newsroom in Seattle, Washington and was surrounded by television journalism my whole life. Um, and, you know, in a pre-internet era, I would watch the Today Show all the time and like sort of fell in love with watching like Jane Pauley and Brian Gumble, and yes. then Kate and Matt Lauer on the Today Show. And uh, like my whole life, I was like, I'm gonna work for the Today Show one day. And sure enough, I did. I interned for them when I was in college, living in New York City, and then, um, you know, went and got my first job out of school working for the Today Show. Um, so, that that you know sort of watching it and being around it and being around journalists all the time i always sort of thought all my mom's co-workers were so cool um they swore all the time and they <laughs> and like like i was like yeah this is a career path for me and that's kind of how i fell in love with it so jeremy i'm an attention whore but i'm also a mama's boy what was it like having a mom i'm sure she was so busy if she wasn't on camera doing she was doing her research you know she was probably always always working and did you feel like you had to share her attention with the world um or was it just kind of exciting because i would have been like uh hello i'm over here <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, no. it was definitely a balance uh that's for sure uh, you know, I, I consider myself an extrovert and a very outgoing person. My mom is like that times a hundred. My mom is personality. And, uh, uh, it's, it's no surprise that her only son became a gay man, became a gay man, was born a gay man. Uh, <laughs> word. But, yeah, uh, very close. She, she would get a kick out of this, but we have a very funny story about when I was, three years old once my mom was queer people were in our lives all the time like my mom you know many of many of her friends were queer when i was growing up and it was a very funny story it was about three years old and she put this in a book she wrote about her career last year that came out last year where i was three years old and divine showed up at our doorstep oh my god and, oh my uh, god <laughs> and keep in mind it's gonna come across problematic but I, I i answered the door and i said mom there's something at the door but i'm not sure what it is <laughs> of course we say this through uh, yeah that would be a problematic thing to say now but you know as a three-year-old answering the door yeah. in the 70s you know that's what a three-year-old would say to divine showing up at your front door but that's a funny story i always like to joke oh about oh my god that's, that's a great, great story around our house growing up yeah <laughs> You know, so I have to know. <laughs> uh, what's a typical week as director of entertainment media uh, at Glad look like? Like, what 
what's a typical week? Sh sh share that with us. <laughs> Another great question. You asked one of the great questions to get insight into the, the world of GLAD. Is there is no typical week. Um, the best thing about my job that I love so much is that no two weeks or no two days are the same. On any given morning, um, I wake up and I'm not sure, you know, what my day is going to look like. You know, for example, last week with everything about the Golden Globes, and we don't have to go into it too much. We could if you want to. But no, thanks. Was, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's like, you know, I couldn't have foreseen the way that GLAD was going to react to the Golden Globes or how we were going to approach the fact that the HFPA did not have a single black member for two decades. And so it was like a fascinating conversation with my coworkers about, you know, what is GLAD's role in this, uh, you know, uh, you know, as an ally organization that stands up for social justice, how, you know, what is, you know, are we going to put out a statement? Are we going to take action? What is the right course of, course of action. How are we going to cover the Golden Globes this year? Is How is it going to be different than how we've done it in past years in light of this new information? And that's just one example of, I think, the many ways that, you know, you never know what's coming. You yeah. never know what's coming and it really keeps you on your toes. And, you know, I had a, you know, fascinating conversation about a project I can't talk about with Netflix this morning. And then we had a big conversation about the Glad Media Awards and uh, the video game category right after that. And, and you know, every day is different. And um, I will say, and I think I said this in the interview with, with Metrosource, is that I'm constantly learning. And yeah. I, I, I turned 45 this year. And to be constant in a job where you're constantly learning, I think is the greatest blessing. Um, especially from the younger, the younger folks at Glad, uh, my younger coworkers, who I'm constantly just blown away by. <laughs> well, I have to just say, you make 45 look good. And when the article came out, I got so many DMs about the article, and I'm like, oh, you know, we talked about so many great issues, and so many of them were like, is he single? Is he single? Is he single? I'm like, calm down, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> so, but Jeremy. The universe. <laughs> Uh, you've been behind the scenes of entertainment. You've also been a consumer of entertainment, like we said, from very young age. Now you have this big title for one of the most important organizations of our community and entertainment. There must be this huge pressure um, to always put your best foot forward in a super PC way, meaning you can't be honest if a movie bores you, the acting is bad, or if a film or a TV show just isn't good. Is that hard? Because we know as gay men, we're very opinionated. Is that is that hard? It's like, God, you just can't just sit and be like, God, that sucked. Yeah. I mean, there are moments uh, where I wish I could just go on Twitter and be like, this film sucks, y'all. But again, it's going to reflect on GLAAD, right? We talked right, about that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Everything I say and do will always reflect on GLAAD. And I'm, I'm very cognizant of that. Um, and you know, it's, it's funny. We always say glad, you know, before social media, glad was very much a watchdog group with the advent of social media. We very much became a resource to Hollywood. Totally. Um, totally. So, you know, because gay Twitter calls it out for us. We, we don't have yeah. to, you, yeah. know, you know, 20 years glad was the only one calling it out on LGBTQ representation. Um, social media changed everything. And, and so, uh, you know, we, we, it's very rare we speak out against a project. So even if I were to speak out personally on my social media about something, it would be like, oh, Glad's, you know, entertainment director hates this show or, or this film. So I am really cognizant about that. 
but I also, you know, as somebody who's an artist myself, um, you know, who dabbles in music and right. DJing and producing, I have a tremendous amount of respect for any artist who puts themselves out there. And, you know, there was a point in my life where I was much more publicly critical of things and I guess a little more jaded, but I have a tremendous respect for any creator in any field of artistry. And so I, I really try to rise above, above any negativity. And if I have something, a thought, you know, about something crappy to say, I keep it with my coworkers and we'll vent to each other, uh, <laughs> which is really my, my outlet. And they're out there, you know, those projects that, that could have done a lot better. And, you know, it's much more fun when I get up, when we get to publicly praise something that's, that's really wonderful, which, which is what we're, what we're more likely to do. Um, and, and that's, you know, when something like Disclosure comes along or um, The Lady in the Dale and Feneno, which just came out. You know, there are all these great projects that we really get, get to uplift both to the community and, and beyond the community. And I, I really love that part of the job. Well, you do put a positive spin on everything. I tend to be more vocal. I don't have the responsibility that you do. And so I'm wondering, and this is a conversation I've had many, many times off the record and on the record, because like you said, when you're in the privacy, you can kind of share your, your opinions and get that venting out. But do you think as the LGBTQ community that we are just so happy to have representation out there that we're not holding ourselves accountable, we're not holding each other accountable, uh, and we pay less attention to quality of acting or the quality of content because we're just so happy to be on camera? Uh, I would say actually the opposite is true at this okay. stage in the year 2021, right? Because, you know, when I think about like when I first interned at GLAAD, which was in 1998, you know, that was right as, oh God, I can't remember the year Will and Grace premiered, but it was right after Ellen and, you know, yep. Queer as Folk and L Word hadn't even premiered yet. Or let's just say the period of the early 2000s when it would be like, there's these, you know, a few shows with LGBTQ characters or storylines on them. And now there's hardly a show on television that doesn't have at least one LGBTQ character. And so I think as a community, we're holding ourselves to a much higher standard and um, not letting things go as much. Um, you know, part of this has to do with the overall push for greater diversity, you know, from a complete intersectional perspective across, you know, all, for all representation in, in all projects in Hollywood. But, you know, I really think we demand more at this point, you know, and and that the the representation that was good five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, doesn't necessarily hold up, and and we all have to do better. And that's really why we have the Glad Media Awards, and why the Glad Media Awards I think are becoming so much bigger year over year in terms of what they mean to to a studio or a network to win one is because we do have these really high standards of impact and boldness of representation. Um, you know, every year the hardest thing for me is like those 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 shows that were right on the bubble of getting a Glad Media Award. Not yeah. And it's like a couple of them, you know, we do reach out and we were like, look, you were, like if we could have just had one more nominee, you would have been there, <laughs> you know? But there's so much great representation that to really get a GLAAD Media Award nomination now, you really have to go above and beyond and, and also reflect the full intersectional diversity of the LGBTQ community. 
And, you know, when you said it, it really kind of clicked for me that Glad did go from being like the tisk tisk tisk, like, you know, like the, like the school teacher, you know, waiting for you to mess up. But it's become a leader in positivity and being a consultant, you know, even talking about the gaming industry, the gaming industry has changed in representation so much, even in the last two years. And so I think Glad as this positive kind of force, it makes us all, it makes people like me that's quick to do like a snappy one you know, liner about, uh-uh, that movie was terrible. It makes me rethink what I'm coming from. But I'm gonna be honest with you, sometimes I've been attacked because I don't like a project or I think acting is bad. People automatically categorize me as transphobic or homophobic. Um, and you know, we as gay journalists can't just assume that people know that we're all inclusive. We, we just can't assume that anymore. I used to be like, duh, I'm homophobic, I'm transphobic, please, I'm gay. That doesn't, that doesn't mean anything anymore because we've seen um, bigotry in our own community. But again, my opinion has just been discounted rather than, no, I'm talking about the acting, I'm talking about the entertainment quality because I'm a consumer. It automatically gets categorized that you hate this group of people or that you're attacking this group of people. How, how do we change that? Wow, that is a that's, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> How do we that? Um, I, you know, I guess if I were to give a short answer, it's one dialogue at a time, right? It, it's 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 um, you know, I don't know if there's there's a, a strong answer to this is the answer to to changing it. I think it's nuance and it's communication and it's it's dialogue with each other, both within the community and with content creators at large and within the industry, right? I'll give an example. Um, that's a recent example of a film I really loved, but that other people in the LGBTQ community were highly critical of. And I think this is just emblematic of what we're talking about right now, which is the film I Care A Lot, which just came out on Netflix. I just want, oh, oh God, love, love, love. <laughs> Me too. So yeah. I, I bring it up and I single it out only because I also love this film. Now, several of my coworkers this film had tropes, right? And Glad is always, I always use the analogy, we point out the landmines to content creators and it's up to you, the content creator, to choose whether or not to step on that landmine. But we're gonna be a barometer and a litmus test to you of the LGBTQ community and their likely reaction to things. Now, I will say that we did not consult on this film. This was not a Netflix original. It was a film that uh, was, 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 produced and financed independently and picked up at Toronto by Netflix. And I really love this movie. I thought it was really fantastic. Rosamund Pike just won a Golden Globe. Take that with a salt, it being the Globes. But it, I thought it was deserved. Um, I thought the acting was fantastic. But there were three tropes here, right? One is um, sort of the, the villainous queer person. Um, two is the... Uh, I don't want to give any spoilers, but let's just say there's a trope out there called barrier gaze. Uh, that, that's a trope that we often draw attention to for Hollywood. And um, three, it's not really so much of a trope as much as something some people had issue with, with with straight actors playing queer roles, right? Which is something that we talk about often and the differences between trans actors, cis actors playing trans roles versus non-LGB non actors playing LGB roles. We could go off for an hour about that. But um, some people really just didn't want anything to do with that film. I'm talking some people from the community, not some people. Right, 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 right. Because of those tropes. For me, I would say, but this was a really good film, right? This had, was a smart film with far, smart things to say about capitalism, about America, um, about casual- the elderly. 
representation, the elderly, casual representation of LGBTQ people, which is something we call on often, which is like, this was not an LGBTQ film. This was a film where the villains happened to be queer, but it was not a queer film. And I really liked the movie. I thought it was good filmmaking. Was it perfect? No, not by any means. Um, but I thought it was a great movie. And so that's just one example of like, you know, you're not going to please, you're going to please some people some of the time, but you're not going to please all people all the time with your art. And that's where I try to be really sensitive. I've never spoken to filmmakers. I don't know Jay Blakeson who wrote and directed the film, but you know, I really love the movie. <laughs> so Jay Blakeson, if you're watching, Rosamund, <laughs> love the movie. But you know, not everyone in the community did. And that's where I think dialogue becomes so important. And, and looking at nuance and not saying that, things are necessarily have to be all this or all that, but that there's room for, you know, the proverbial gray instead of the black and white in between. Well, and I have to tell you, I, I love casual representation. I think we're seeing a lot of it in commercials where, oh, there's a gay couple. And it's just, it's just told as a matter of fact, it's not like this is the gay commercial. It's like, oh, it's part of it. And I think that we need more of that because characters, we as a gay community, we know there's villains in our community. There's every type of person in our community. So, you know, why the more I think we integrate it as just part of the storyline, the more I think we're going to build bridges with viewers that are not exposed to LGBTQ people in real life on a regular basis. And it's just told matter of fact, this story was about something else. You know, that was part of her life and her love story, um, by the way, which, you know, that was a positive aspect of her villainous. Her her only source of love was this relationship, which I totally got. And yeah. it, you know, it wasn't dependent on it being a lesbian relationship. It was just a relationship. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like Tracy Gilchrist, the editor-in-chief of The Advocate, loved it. And, like, I know a lot of lesbians who really love this movie, right? Like, there's, and so I don't think you throw the baby out with the bathwater just yeah. with the tropes. Because even though it's important to acknowledge those tropes, you know? Uh, okay. So... <laughs> You kind of brought up the subject and this has been such a hot topic um, and it's something I've talked about and I get so many kind of weird messages and good messages and informative messages, but we're talking about, is there a double standard when we're talking about gay representation? James Corden was in the prom and everybody went crazy saying, oh, this is why you shouldn't have a straight man playing a gay man. Awful, awful, awful. But then we have Paul Bettany playing and nailing it as Uncle Frank. And everybody is happy and what a beautiful movie. Everybody needs to see this movie. There wasn't that same conversation. So aren't we just talking about acting quality or are we talking about representation and do we have double standards? Is it a fair conversation? Yeah. And again, I just go back to it's a project by project situation, right? I mean, I, I think I, I can't remember if I said this in the article, but I counted like 17 projects that could be LGBTQ inclusive in consideration for the Academy Awards this year. You know, again, you know, not just uh, Paul Bettany, but Viola Davis and Andre Day playing bi women in their respective films this year. Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth and Supernova, Kate Winslet right. and Ronan in, in, in Ammonite. There's so many this year. And straight actors playing gay roles. Um, and, and again, this is where the conversation gets super interesting, right? I think what struck a chord with the James Corden situation, which by the way, most of the criticism I saw against Corden's performance was from cisgender gay white men, which is fine, um, of which I am one. <laughs> but, it, you know, I, I, I felt like 
it struck this chord of shame in people, um, like very Velvet Rage type stuff. Mm. Um, you know, a straight actor playing an over-the-top effeminate gay character um, that dealt in stereotypes that probably were triggering for some people. And 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 we could go a, a whole nother podcast episode about about shame and and I've been listening to a lot of Brene Brown late, lately, so shame and vulnerability <laughs> and, and, and whatnot. But um, I, I think that you know the reason why Corden's getting more criticized than say Viola Davis or Andre Day for playing by women is 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 that it, that that role struck struck something for people and and it, it and so I, again i don't think there's like i don't think you can say straight actors shouldn't play lgb roles the same way you can say cis actors should not play trans roles right because uh, there are very distinct differences and reasons for that but um i think every role has to be looked at on a case-by-case basis and I do think, you know, Russell T. Davies just came out with a very big statement when It's a Sin dropped, talking right. about, about I purposefully only cast gay actors. And at the same time, I have all these studios coming to me saying, like, we can't ask an actor in their audition, the audition room about their sexual orientation. It's illegal to do so, um, which it is. You know, you cannot say, are you gay when you're auditioning for a role? Are you bi? Are you lesbian? You know, so... It's nuanced and every situation is different is my only non-answer answer to that. Well, and my whole thing, like like you said, you know, we have all these movies for contenders as Academy Awards. Some of your favorite projects that you listed will never see the light of day in a huge mainstream or to a whole a huge mainstream audience. And so if we want our stories told on a on a in, in a huge way, um, I think sometimes we do have to rely on star power. Thank God we have bigger names that are coming out as LGBTQ. So we are taking baby steps to that. But you know, when the whole Scarlett Johansson thing happened, I said, okay, then give me another A-list uh, trans actor that we can replace. Because we know it's a business at the end of the day. You need people to finance the film. You need people to distribute the film. And sometimes if you don't have a major name, it'll never get um, made. Or if it does get made, it's going to be shown to a very small percentage of the audience. We're going to be preaching to the choir. Um, yeah. And so and I think that that's important too. My favorite part of that story, the film was Rub and Tug in, in 2018, is that this past fall it was announced that it's going to be redone as a TV series with Our Lady J show running it and a trans male actor who's not yet been announced in the leading role. That's been in the trade, so that's you know public. Oh, information. I had no clue. You are yeah. you are the the bringer of news. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like there's always a solution, right? It's like you know if you've watched Disclosure, you know if you can't find a trans actor for your role, you're not looking hard enough. You know. Oh, and, right. And you know whether it's like. Okay, so it's not going to be a blockbuster film with Scarlett Johansson starring as a, a cisgender woman in a transgender male role. But guess what? You were able to pivot the project, adapt it to television, and find a way where it could be the next pose for all we know. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny when Brokeback Mountain came out, I saw that. I didn't know how graphic it was going to be, but I saw it with my grandma. And the only reason she went to see it was because she knew the names that were the stars and she loved them, right? And yeah. so we saw this. <laughs> very eye-opening film for her 
um, which dealt with a lot of issues, but because it had that kind of star power in a comfortable, uh, from comfortable actors, you know, that she felt comfortable with, she had seen their work. That's the only reason she went to see the film and she was better for it. Our relationship was better for it as well. Although it was very uncomfortable sitting next to my grandma <laughs> during the sex scene. During the sex scene. You know, like, where did it go? <laughs> I love that. I love hearing that. Um, you know, I wonder if Brokeback would have the same impact if it came out in 2021 that it did in That's 2005. That's very interesting. Right? You yeah. know, in 2005, absolutely. And LGBTQ rights and as a social justice movement, we were in such a different place, right? Yeah. And, and so, I, you know, I, I, Brokeback did amazing things back then. And I and I, I think the film still holds up as a film, but I wonder if it would have had the same impact if it came out now that it did then. That is a very, very interesting comment. Okay, so, you know, we're sitting here in the middle of the day talking about these issues. You've already been to work this morning talking about another huge project. You probably are going to go on to talk about something, you know, big for this afternoon in your personal life. And I'm going to go text my friend about Real Housewives of New Jersey. There's a, just a different pressure that you have all day. How do you deal with a term? Uh, th this is what I call activist fatigue, where every conversation you have is heavy. Um, I'm sure when you go to a cocktail party, somebody wants to ask you these issues because they want to know what the expert has to say or what a PC way to say it. Every panel you're on, every party you go to, every email you send has to have this kind of heaviness. How do you deal with this activist fatigue and how do you kind of unwind and um, take a breath from it all? It's exhausting. It is. And thank you for asking that and acknowledging that because not just myself, but all of my coworkers at Glad. Um, it can really be heavy stuff, you know, every day when we have, you know, our daily staff meetings and we're talking about the news of the day and what's going on. Like oftentimes we're dealing with hate crimes or anti-trans violence and like, you know, you know, now all the awful bills, the anti, you know, trans high school athlete bills that are popping up all over the country. And it can, you know, I, I don't want to call it like PTSD, but it, it, it does, that's for anyone working in nonprofit, I think has this issue that they have to constantly process, which is, you know, if I'm constantly working on this cause, how do I process absorbing it all and, and take in, you know, dealing with it. And the truth is you have to be really active about self-care, um, like really, really being close to yourself emotionally and like for me, that's I'm in therapy every week. I have a therapist I have a long-term relationship with who I trust and I can really bounce things off of because I think mental health is, is super important for all of us. And, um, you know, some days I just need to be like, yeah, I need a massage this week. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you know it's, it's self-care is so important and so underrated, especially in the LGBTQ community where we're all dealing with trauma in some form. Um, to whatever degree. And so um, I rely on my coworkers. I really rely on my coworkers. I alluded to that before. Um, they're really amazing people. And and I would say uh, to work at GLAD, you have to, you know, have a really big heart and, and be really sensitive and, and, uh, and feel very deeply. And it's that reason that we are people who feel very deeply that we work there. And at the same time, that's also what we use to help support each other. Um, I think that that's so important. And it's also important for us from the community who rely on our activists to come to the prides, be you know visible at, at, especially during this last pride season. I know a lot of celebrities that were 
exhausted because they could attend, so to speak, every Pride, but then we know that there's an exhaustion that comes with Zoom and then always having to be on, always having to be PC. We demand a lot from our activists as well. And it's important for us to realize that they need downtime. And if they say no to a certain event or something, they probably just kind of need a, a, a breath. Um, so uh, last before I go, uh, so you've done the AIDS life cycle 10 times. Um, I've dated people that have done the ride. I won't even go on a hike if it's not an open bar. Um, <laughs> I've, but I've heard it's an amazing experience, but it's also very grueling. Uh, why do you do it year after year? And what aspect gets easier? What aspect gets harder? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. And unfortunately, for the second year in a row, there will not be an in-person AIDS yeah. which is why the LA LGBT Center and the San Francisco AIDS Foundation need our donations so much this year. In their place, there's going to be something called Together Ride this year, in which you go out and you cycle on your own and raise money still to support the life-saving services that those sort of direct service organizations are providing here on the West Coast. Just two of many organizations doing this great work. Um, you know, I felt I first did, I did my first AIDS life cycle in 2008. And I just fell in love with the community at first. I, you know, it's 3000 people that go down the coast for seven days every year. And I was like, oh, this is my people. This is where I was meant to be. You know, I learned so much more about HIV AIDS stigma through 10 times participating in the ride. And moreover, about those aforementioned life-saving services that the center and the SFA, SFAF provide, um, it's it's what gets harder is that my body's getting older. And <laughs> Let me tell you that. Uh, but the great thing about cycling is it's like it's it's like every year the youngest participant is 18, and the oldest participant usually is usually in their 80s because cycling is an activity that if you take care of your body, you can do. Oh your yeah, body. for sure. It's like running where like your knees might start hurting, cycling you can do for a long time. And it's, it's a really social event. That's like the biggest misconception is that I think some people think the AIDS life cycle is a race when in fact it's like super social. And right. like, I'm usually like coming in at the back of the pack every day to camp. Cause like I take my time, but the rest stops <laughs> and, uh, and really take the time to watch the drag shows they have going on in the middle of the ride. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just a community. And I fell in love with this community early on. And I think I'll be a part of this community uh as long as it keeps happening so um that the my love what gets easier is my love for the for this community and and the support and and what i get back from the people uh and what gets harder is my body my body aches. <laughs> okay before we let you go let's play a little rapid fire are you ready yeah i'm ready okay so as a dj we know that you are an aficionado on music um so you are asked to play one artist for an entire club night. What artist would you choose? Mm, Kylie Minogue. Okay. Uh, what is a personal totem that you take with you on every AIDS life cycle? Uh, a stuffed pug. Oh. oh. There's one uh, right now. They're all over my house. <laughs> so cute. Uh, what is your guilty pleasure movie? So bad it's good. Oh gosh, that's such a good question. Um, so bad it's good. Uh, drop that gorgeous. Okay, <laughs> and they just added this to HBO Max, by the way. Uh, what would the name of your biography be thus far? Uh, my biography. Uh, uh life in music and storytelling. Uh, 
I think we could punch it up a little bit. It's fine. I can do better. What's the funniest interview red carpet experience that you've had? And I know you've been on many, many red carpets, both on it and behind it. Oh, gosh. I think once I was like forced to ask Warren Beatty about a potential affair. And he oh, paid, my God. told me to fuck off and moved <laughs> As he should. <laughs> yeah, oh God, it's celebrity news day. It was a while. Ago. Oh, Lord. <laughs> All right, Jeremy, tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, on Twitter, Instagram, DJ Blacklow. Uh, my my Instagram is very much just about music and DJing. My Twitter is much more about Glad and and my life's work uh, in LGBTQ media. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Um, it's it's such a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, and thank you for everything that you do for the community. It's truly my honor, Alexander. It's been so great meeting you through this process. Uh, I'm so flattered and honored that you took the time to highlight my work and the work I do at GLAAD. Um, so truly, uh, the pleasure mine is mine. Thank you. Uh, that has been my chat with Jeremy Blacklow. You can read my in-depth interview with him in our last issue of Metrosource on newsstands around the nation or at metrosource.com. That's our episode. I'm your host, Alexander Rodriguez. You can find me on Instagram at Alexander's on Air. Until next time. Stay true. Do you, boo? <laughs>